Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by Bombas, a great place to get cool, creative, and above all, comfortable socks. Go to getbombas.com slash weekend to get 20% off your first order. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This week, we're talking about the concept of the Ever Game, that sweet opiate of the mind and soul that exists past nothing but vaguely pleasant hours and days for the rest of your life. In other words, Rob, how is Destiny in this new expansion that just came out? Well, uh, it is more Destiny. Uh, the the uh. prophecy has come true, uh, my prediction, my <laughs> prognostication, uh, that Rise of Iron would, in fact, create more Destiny content, uh, proved to be exactly correct. Um, Excellent. The, you know, the, the stuff that I love about Destiny is 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 still all there. Um, it's it's been a blast, sort of getting back to you know that that kind of shooter, uh, something that's like that well made. And yet I have to admit that compared to the Taken King, it's 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 a pretty vastly it's a pretty vastly uh inferior product oh. uh in a lot of ways. Like, you know, and and this is the this is the frustrating thing is I I find myself in this position of being like, well, it's all right, it's it's more destiny and, and to an extent that's all I wanted. And that's that's kind of true. But at the same time, the Taken King was like actively fun. And like not not just in the sense that like it's a it's a good uh you know expertly made shooter, but it was just a cool uh thing to play from like an aesthetic and 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 narrative standpoint. Uh like right from the first you have a huge space battle and then you got this like totally like creepy gothic nightmare spaceship that you keep going into mission after mission. Uh, to go fight these um, like sort of possessed uh, soldiers from this like demon king, and that was all great. Plus, the entire thing was anchored uh, by this hilarious like interplay uh, between uh, like the Nathan Fillion character, who's pretty much exactly <laughs> like you expect, um, and then the uh, like super gothy uh, Cassandra like witch uh, character that's uh, sort of been the like super uh, super emo super uh, depressing character throughout the story and that was really fun watching them sort of play off against each other and and having them sort of uh, be the two poles of the experience rise of iron is just not that um, Would you it, say, can I make a cool joke? Do you yeah, want to hear a cool joke? Yeah, go for it. Would you say it's leaving you cold? <laughs> yes. So yes, sorry. it is. Thank you. Uh, it does, in fact, introduce winter to the world of Destiny. <laughs> um, it, is, it is a little chilly, and it is leaving me just a little bit cold. Um, <laughs> not the, like, you know, as usual, like, the levels look gorgeous. Some of the new settings uh, look really nice. Um, it does all feel a little small, uh, a little small bore. Um, the new, okay. the new hub you go to. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure, not entirely sure why we need a new hub, uh, but also it feels kind of chintzy. Um, it's like one of those 
little outposts you'd find in World of Warcraft where like it had half the vendors that you usually need, but like it's out there in the middle of the forest, so it's convenient in some ways. That's how it feels. But the main thing is, it is some of the most aggressively boring writing and voice <laughs> acting um, that I've encountered anytime recently, and certainly that I've encountered uh, at any time since like Destiny Year One. Um, like at this wow. point, like if if Dinklage came back into this game, it would be an improvement. Oh, uh, God. Because the main character, uh, Lord Saladin. It's like he looks badass and the opening cutscene is is super badass. He's this like space marine dude with like a warhammer and they're fighting all kinds of shit and it's great. And you're and you're like this is fantastic. This is going to be cool. And it's all good until Lord Saladin starts to speak. Oh no. And then it's just the most like flat um affectless delivery of every single line. And then other characters are brought in um, who are also unrelated to the main, like, named characters. Uh, so I guess maybe, like, Nathan Fillion was busy or they couldn't afford him or something. <laughs> so a new character shows up. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, Cade sent me. I'm the new uh, scout, and I'm here to, to, to help out with this. So you won't be <laughs> seeing Cade. You'll be seeing me. And I swear to God, I can barely tell him and solve it in a part. Like, so you'll have these long, like, dialogues. You have these long dialogues between what sound like, um, like two Midwesterners reading out of a phone book, um, (laughs) for like five minutes. And the the most incomprehensible phone book you can imagine, by the, by the way, it's like, (laughs) we have to knock out that artillery. No, we must stop Siva. Well, whatever we do, we should do it quickly or something like that. It's 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 oh, all really God. bad, but it's just like just imagine hours of of people just going back and forth like that. Uh So it's really frustrating because like I think The Taken King had really allowed, I think it allowed me to believe in this narrative that uh that like Destiny was on track and it was only going to get better from here, right? They'd uh, whoever was in charge of the thing now had had was was bringing the the good characters and the good writing and figuring out like how to make this game uh, really sort of live up to its potential. And then Rise of Iron kind of arrives, and it like a it just kind of feels like content for content's sake. Uh, but b it just like it, none of it makes any sense, and it's all just like poisonously delivered. It sounds like they were going for stoicism, and they hit icy and boring and that's that's never the best combination (laughs) or the best uh the best look to go for yeah like making really stoic characters the center of your narrative can be a little tricky but i you know it's i don't think it's impossible um it's not impossible because (laughs) official game of the show yes (laughs) witcher 3 Geralt isn't very charming he's pretty stoic but super dry yeah so yeah, you know. so I mean, Geralt's a Geralt's a perfect example. Um, you know, Kevin Conroy's Batman uh, is is pretty stoic and and still sure. manages to to work. Like, you know, fiction's full of of good stoic characters. The the fun of it is seeing stoicism, seeing other people, less disciplined people, play off that stoicism, and watching these stoic people like sort of 
engage with the uh, randomness and chaos of the world. Destiny feels... <laughs> Destiny's always had that danger of just being too stoic a world, right? Like, the entire thing is you're, you're these undead space wizards or something fighting to protect humanity from who the hell knows what. Um, and, and, and so, to an extent, like... A lot of these characters, like a lot of these characters, feel like they belong in a really generic fantasy novel. And I think the reason that Taken King worked is because it was sort of sly about that and like was aware of the absurdity of Destiny. And now Rise of Iron is like, no, this is all deadly serious. Yeah, it's that's yeah. Gone. I was just gonna say that sounds a little disappointing because it sounded like they lightened the tone a bit, and and that's kind of. For the best, and God, it's just everything about Destiny. I, you know, famously have not played much of it, uh, but I, I watch it from afar. You know, I've seen quite a bit of it played. I, I obviously, we do coverage at Zam, you know, put up video guides and things like that. And it just seems like this would have been a really great opportunity to just go completely, you know, fun on Hoth with it and, and just, just like revel in all their, their sort of very generic sci fi looking aesthetic. It just sort of just go with it just have fun just be do the doom thing and just be yourself uh, and it sounds like they went in the opposite direction with it yeah and I, I really i really wonder why that is like i i really wonder why the um approach that taken king adopted seems to have been rejected in this case uh i also would really love to just i, I really wonder at the state of the destiny story bible uh at this point <laughs> oh god uh because like so the reason it's called The Rise of Iron is it's telling the story of uh, the Iron Lords. What's an Iron Lord? Where do they come into this? That's a great question. Funny you should ask. Uh, so in the fiction that Destiny has sort of ponderously established to date, uh, the Traveler shows up. Humanity has a golden age. Then the Traveler's many, many enemies show up and completely destroy humanity over the course of like a couple of years. You know, and it ends with Earth, like, basically being invaded and destroyed. Uh, and then the Guardians um, sort of end up... The, the Traveler's sort of last burst of strength uh, creates this, like, uh, like stronghold for humanity. And it creates these Guardians to defend it. Okay, okay. cool. So the, the Guardians and the Last City are all kind of products of the, uh, the, the dying embers of the Traveler. And... The Guardians have sort of been keeping watch over the remnants of humanity and fighting these battles uh, for forever since since the uh, catastrophe. Okay. Now Destiny's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. We left out the part about the Iron Lords. Oh, no. So in the middle there, somewhere. <laughs> and we're gonna, like, don't, don't worry too much about the timing of this entire thing. Just, just, right. just be cool. Just go uh, in between, like, sort of before the Guardians, but, like, after the Traveler, but, like, after the Collapse, but before the Guardians... Maybe the last city, just really not. We're not sure. Uh, the 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 Iron Lords were around, and they were badasses. Uh, they were total like uh, space marine type like dudes and dudettes, um, and they were kind of fighting the good fight, and they had a really good thing going. And then they sort of flew too close to the sun and unleashed some sort of like cyber plague on the world and they were all destroyed. Um, and you never heard about these guys because they were all destroyed except for Lord Saladin who has been an Iron Lord the entire time. 
Um, but anyway, that's all important now. Uh, and now you have to go uncover the secrets of of the Iron Lords, uh, who uh, were who totally were a thing in this fiction. <laughs> Don't you worry. Um, <laughs> it's. I mean, this definitely sounds like, you know. Somebody sat down their eight-year-old, their very imaginative eight-year-old, and they were like, yes! Sally, Sally, I want you to tell me, just set, you know, put a bunch of like destiny figurines and then, in front of her and was like, Sally, I want you to tell me what happened to, to, to these lovely people. You can name them too. So, you know, just tell me what happened. And they were like, and then, but I forgot to tell you about the Iron Lords because they also did a thing. Like, it, that's what this sounds like. Not yeah, it, it's it's exactly it's exactly what it sounds like, exactly what it plays like. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what any of this shit is, um, and the frustrating thing is that to a degree, it's always been easy to make fun of people who give any kind of a shit about Destiny lore because it is kind of like really silly and also yeah. like incredibly well hidden within that freaking grimoire that you have to like read online and can't read within the game. Uh, but here's the thing. I've actually had a soft spot for Destiny lore. And especially after the Taken King, where, like, certain characters started humanizing it. Uh, that was kind of nifty. And now, it's sort of gone back to this whole, um, appendices of Return of the King, or, oh, like, yeah. uh, what, or, or, or shit that couldn't even make it into the Silmarillion, just like the other random notes that Tolkien had about Middle-earth. Like, that's kind of the grade narrative uh, that you've got <laughs> coming, coming, into, uh, coming into the Rise of Iron. And in the process of doing that, it's kind of screwing up other bits of narrative that have, have somewhat successfully been propped up. Uh, and so now I'm just sort of, like, staring at the state of the story and destiny i'm like well i don't know where you go from here like i like literally i just have no idea like what like the the salvage operation on this is going to be extraordinary uh i don't i don't envy anyone who's going to be tasked with like all right destiny 2 narrative time we got to clean this shit up like saladin jr it was all a fever dream from Saladin Jr. about uh, Saladin's father. That's the whole. Yeah. Yeah, the whole yeah exactly. It's basically it, like it's going to wake up and it's going to be the end of the Newhart show or something like that. Gonna, I had the craziest dreams Bob Newhart back in his apartment. Uh, I was an Iron Lord. That's nice, hon. Go back to sleep. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, you know, if they literally made it. Just Tommy Westfall this shit. Show, if they actually no, <laughs> oh like they actually oh put it in the Rise of Iron has universe. all the snow. Rise of Iron has all the snow. You could just end it with like the zoom out through the snow. <laughs> it's Tommy yes. Westfall just like staring in a snow globe. I would be so happy if they actually did that. Uh, that would be cool. That would be cool. That would be a, a baller ass move, as we call it in apparently my house that I just made up right now. I mean, it sounds like okay. Sounds like this is not the most exciting DLC. Yeah, by a lot of means. But it does sound like you're still playing it. You're still going back to Destiny. It's still something of an ever game for you. Yeah. Uh, I kind of can't... I kind of can't stop myself. And I guess that's very much yeah. the point. Uh, which is that, like... Destiny's really interesting because... It's sort of like reason for existing is to be a time sink. Like it was designed to be just one of the 
most absurdly sticky games <laughs> uh, you know, ever made. Now, where I think Bungie probably sort of fell down is that they knew how to make a game that could sort of like keep you on the treadmill. What they didn't have a real game plan for was um, spicing things up in between. Uh, major expansions, right? So, sure. like, I guess you know what what uh, I get. You know, some of my friends who work on MMOs and free to play stuff call like live operations, like the the things you need to do that are like this is happening this month, and it's a reason to sort of check back in and consume like fresh content. They never mastered that, so I think that's why Destiny sort of became kind of a a, a sour thing for a lot of people at times because there's very little to do except the same stuff over and over again. However. I think fundamentally it, it it kind of succeeded, right? Like, I mean, even Rise of Iron uh, is not great. I'm still, like, in on this ride. <laughs> I'm still sort of yeah. planning, like, you know, once I'm done taking this uh, this hunter through all this content, maybe I'll start up a uh, Titan, uh, you know, Titan and, and, and play a different character class and, <laughs> uh, you know, go through Taking King again. Um, and I, I find it kind of interesting because, like, I think... We talked on the show about the the sort of gap between who we want to imagine ourselves to be and then who we actually are. And sure. Destiny is absolutely the game for who I actually am. Like it, it's it's just sort of it just sort of comes over on like a lazy Sunday and is just like, hey man, it's all right. Just just have some brunch. You know, have a have a beer. It's Take it it's, easy. Like, it's like ten thirty. Like, where you gotta go? You don't have to go yeah. anywhere. Hey, why don't you check in on these dailies? Won't that feel good? Maybe there'll be some good loot. Just, just kick <laughs> back, and like, and it, like a lot of times, like you know what that that's that's all I want to do. Like I don't like it's 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 the same thing between like you know behind like binge TV. It's just this this vaguely pleasant uh, distraction that's just engaging enough, and yeah. that's that's where Destiny lives. I was thinking a little bit about whether I have an Evergame. Um, and I don't think I have one currently, but I, I did have one at one point in my life. And it's something I've talked about on the podcast before, but the original Animal Crossing um, was an ever game for me for like four or five years. I popped into that and on the GameCube. It wasn't even on the, you know, easy to use platform, basically. And I, and I definitely had a very, very um, pleasant and fun and kind of wonderful 80 to 100 hours with the the sort of newest iteration, the New Leaf, you know, the iteration on the uh, 3DS last year, around this time, actually, around when I uh, when I moved uh, from San Francisco to New York. But I played that original Animal Crossing for the entirety of college and I think the first sort of year of grad school for me. So, like, from 2002 all the way to, you know, 2006, 2007. And I just never stopped. I just, I had my sort of weekly rituals with it. You know, I, there were times I played it every single day for hours and there were times I played it, you know, once every week or every other week to check in with my little animals and kind of trade things and, and look around and just sort of be in the world and hear the music and chill out and relax. And the world, you know, changed a little bit because that's the nature of that game. You know, little animals move in and out or they're, you know, the seasons change. There's like a sense of progression, but it's not it's not changing the way something like Destiny changes, where there's actually like new content. You know, the the game itself is actually evolving. Um, but it, it was probably the closest thing I I will have to an ever game. That and like Drop Seven, 
just because I can't quit it. I just, I'll never be able to quit it. That's my ultimate little uh, mobile game that I always check back to. So why does, like, why did Animal Crossing end up becoming that for you when, like, so many games aggressively try to be your every game? <laughs> like, I mean, there's, like, the MMO genre, like, that that's the dream, right? Is, the, you know, yeah. you're the thing, they the, they are the thing that you play. And it's, it's a monogamous I, yeah. relationship. I definitely, so I kind of know that I have, you know, I don't exactly have, like, an addictive personality, quote unquote, but I get hooked on things and I can't stop them. And I will repeat them and repeat them and repeat them like a child. And so like, I know to stay away. It's it's like, I, I gotta live clean, man. I can't, I can't do that. Right. Yeah, exactly. I just, I can't chase the dragon ever because once I start, I'll, I'll never stop. And so I've like never really played an MMO, not really. Like, you know, same thing as with so many other things. Like, I'm interested on some level. I'll watch a little bit. Maybe I'll dip in a tiny bit with somebody sort of guiding me. And I'll be like, okay, I, I, I understand what's happening here on some level. But I cannot. I will die. Like, I just, <laughs> I, like, not enough hours in the day. And I, and I don't want to, like, hurt myself, basically. <laughs> uh, with MMOs, anyway. I'm not opposed to having an Ever game, though. Like, clearly, I, I, I have that element of my personality where I like to be in a world that's comfortable and happy and like a, a place for me to spend time that's a that's a nice place for me to be so yeah I mean I guess for me it's it's more based on sort of the world itself rather than the gameplay itself if that makes any sense no it, it absolutely does like I mean I, I think maybe that's a part of destiny that I tend to underrate is that maybe one reason that I sort of find it comforting is there's just lots of like expansive vistas and pretty colors yeah and, and and all that all the time um and missions unfolding in this this ritualistic manner yeah um I think I wanted no man's sky to be an ever game i I think I wanted it to be that for well me. you didn't a lot of other people sure as hell did. Yeah, I know, right? That's a, that's actually a great comparison. Um, so, like, people have their love-hate relationships with Destiny, but, like, <laughs> I think people are fundamentally, like, I mean, I'm playing Rise of Iron. I have my issues with it, but I'm like, yep, this is, this is doing it for me. And No Man's Sky has <laughs> a lot to offer as well. Uh, but it it's sort of something about it sort of pisses people off. Yeah, it does. It it's because it looks so enticing. It looks like the most beautiful ocean that you'll ever see in your life. It looks like this this beautiful ocean of infinite possibilities. But once you jump in, you kind of break your neck on a shallow pool, and it's it's a little bit of a disappointing thing. And and I am definitely on the lighter side of the spectrum when it comes to any kind of, uh, you know, distaste for No Man's Sky. I, I really liked most of the time I spent with it that I wasn't literally mining bullshit. And I really liked what it looked like they wanted to make, basically. But I I do kind of understand the grievances with it. And I do kind of understand the disappointment with it when it's just, oh my God, just so pretty and so beautiful. And you just want to hold it in your hands and it just slips through like a million grains of sand kind of. Is is part of it also, um, when I think of the games that have functioned as ever games for me, like they also tend to be the ones that, um, either have really explicit progression mechanics, like Destiny yeah. is completely a loot chase after a point. But 
a lot of my sort of ever games tend to be games that allow me to have goals that move and change over time in a way that is satisfying. Like, yeah, uh, Civilization, it's not that you're just playing one more turn. It's, it's really that you want to play five more turns because in five more turns you get the thing that does the other thing. That's what you're playing for. In five more turns, turns uh, that Ironworks is going to complete and then that city is going to be like 50% more productive. And then it's going to be on. And that's going to be awesome. And you look forward to that moment. And the genius of Civ is that it sort of can reinvent itself with every fresh new game. Uh, you know, you're sort of racing to colonize, expand. Um, you know, that's why it has late, games pro- late game problems. Because those goals, you start running out of goals. And it starts to boil down, funnel down to a, to a couple of the same goals again and again. Uh, yeah. But but you can always go back and and start the chase anew. Uh, with Destiny, there's there's always uh, there's always some other. You're always sort of trying to push your light level a little higher. Or and this is where I started to break. Uh, you're you're trying to get more exotics to consume and pump into your other exotics, and it becomes a real <laughs> a real nightmare. Um, but the the the, the point is, is that. You're doing something that, after a point, is very familiar and not mindless, but also like not a completely new and particularly taxing problem in the service of finding some reward that will excite and empower you in some way. Whereas if a game has a lot of the moving goalposts and a lot of the, the endlessness, but it doesn't have the payoffs and no end sky kind of didn't have the systems to support, you know, real progression type payoffs. Uh, then you're kind of left with, well, how, how satisfying is this intrinsic reward? Um, right. And I guess no man's sky sky's case is, is, is not. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that. And it, it also, it has to be said that, like, you know, shooting things is, at its base level, if it's done well, it's it's kind of fun, right? It's, it's kind of fun, fun to shoot things. Um, mining is not fun at all, like, whatsoever. I, I don't think so. At least the way it's put together in No Man's Sky. Like, it's not, it's not fun to have to go get a bunch of bullshit just to get back in your spaceship and do the thing that you really want to do. I, it felt like a chore to me, as opposed no. to, hey, it, you know what's fun? Target practice. It's like an intrinsically kind of fun mechanic. So there, there's a little problem with that too. If only they had just done a photo safari game and the intrinsic fun becomes comparing your weird photos with other players and actually getting points from that instead of mining, it would have been a beautiful, beautiful love story between me and No Man's Sky. <laughs> yeah. Alas, it was not. I am really curious. Like, you know, obviously Destiny 2 is... is you know the, the 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 word is out there about what that's uh you know probably going to look like um there's it's it's probably going to be a very different kind of thing it's it's going to be a pc game probably for you know hmm. uh, to, yeah. to some extent um but I, I i do kind of wonder okay so this is this is the thing i've been sort of turning over with destiny and and part of this is prompted by Kirk Hamilton's review of Rise of Iron, uh, yeah. which is really, really good. And Kirk has actually written uh, quite the oeuvre around, yeah. around Destiny. And I actually say, like, 
they're really brilliant essays and it's weird that like I feel like I have this this deep relationship with Destiny in part because I've had this vicarious one for so long uh, through Kirk's writing. Is part of the reason that Destiny functions so well as an ever game because it is not that great. <laughs> sure, yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's never getting your expectations high, it, so it's never going to disappoint you, at least to any kind of you know large degree. And I, and I also just, I kind of wonder, like, if it were more, if it were more narratively satisfying, right? Uh, if the missions were a little more scripted and like, you know, they felt more like good shooter levels and stuff, would it have worn thin? A little bit, right? Because, like, Destiny is a game without a ton of high peaks. And then it, it, it has its valleys, but they tend to be, like, large, like broad, fertile valleys, right? Yeah. Like they're they're yeah. kind of shallow. Um, and they're long and they're broad. And then there's these, these little, like, foothills of, uh, of joy uh, throughout the experience. And I kind of wonder, like... Did the game end up being more successful in some ways, in its ambition of being an ever game, because in some ways it is so comfortably middling and yeah. asks so very little of you intellectually and emotionally that it, that never gets you too wound up, never gets you too excited. It just it keeps you in the middle. It puts you in a flow state so to speak, as opposed to kind of a, a peaks and valleys roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, absolutely right. cause I, I feel like a lot of other games that I have this relationship with, I end up sort of hitting a wall where I just don't feel like working that hard. Like a Paradox game, for instance, if I've got a really good game going, but it's getting really hard, I'll be like, I don't want to, I don't want to load that save tonight. I just, I can't even deal with that tonight. Like, it's just, it's not, it's, no. Like, it's been too hard a day. Uh, whereas Destiny is always like, go on, put your feet up. Let me get, yeah. let, me, let me get you your slippers. It's a buddy with a beer, as opposed yeah. to an intellectually challenging conversation with a, with a rigorous intellectual friend. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Destiny is, Destiny is Vince Vaughn. Yes, he's your bro. Yes. He's your bro. He's your bro. He's always going to be there for you. You can you can rely on your bro. Right. Yeah. Right. Whereas like yeah. other games they're they're like, you know, they're like they're like Brad Pitt or something like that where it's like which <laughs> which one are we getting here? Is it going to be what 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 ride are we going on? Is it going to be 7? Is it going to be or, or are we going to Mr. And Mrs. Smith? I don't know. Or uh, Benjamin but, Button even. Yeah. I mean <laughs> I actually think I actually kind of like that movie maybe more than I should have. Uh, <laughs> oh, we're going to have to talk about that sometime for sure. Oh no. Oh no. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, like so that's, that's where I ended up is I think destiny kind of succeeds even better as, as being the ever game because in some ways it's this really flawed uh, hack together thing. 
that has <laughs> the core parts of it work really really well and everything around it is kind of ramshackle right it's like it's like it's like the the, the shabby like beater of a car <laughs> with a ferrari engine inside yeah yeah and i really wonder if destiny 2 can sort of recapture that because with destiny 2 they're going to fix all this stuff and i really wonder like in the act of fixing it will it kind of no longer be destiny yeah, that'll be really interesting to see. Like, if it gets too good looking, will it, will it still be your bro? Like, is it, I don't know. Yeah. Or is it going to be too much? Is it going to be too much to deal with your bro? And then you're just like, well, I'm going to go play Destiny 1 for a while. See you later, buddy. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I suspect the, the Ever Game, the Ever Game cannot ask too much of you. Because yeah. the Ever Game, I think the Ever Game exists to be an escape. Uh, and, and not like, not just an escape from like, you know, daily drudgery or whatever, but also just an escape from self, right? Just a, my brain needs to be tied up with a very harmless, uh, moderately taxing problem, just enough to make me stop thinking about everything else. Yeah. I think I'm, uh, yes, maybe I need an ever game. Maybe that will like, maybe I should play destiny. Maybe I should just play this damn thing and see what it, what's up. I think we all. Needed need never game. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe my ever game is just Twitter. Maybe that's just No, that's Twitter. a terrible ever game. No. <laughs> you Destiny 2. We're gonna get you off Twitter on Destiny 2. It's all right, that sounds good. We'll switch addictions. That'll be yeah. very good. It'll be excellent. Alright, I think that's probably a a good place uh for us to move into our weekend correspondence. But first, a word from our sponsor. Danielle, come here. Look at yeah. these socks. Feel uh, these socks. Oh, damn. Hell yeah. Got my Bombas. How is the sole this soft? Because of a reinforced footbed made of high-quality cotton, Danielle. It's like you've wrapped a freaking cloud around your foot. Oh, my God. How do I get in on this? Easy. Just point your browser to getbombas.com slash weekend and get your 20% off of your first order. Whoa, Rob, did you know that by getting a pair of Bombas, it's like you donated an extra pair to a homeless shelter? And I'm not talking about some ratty old used gym socks. That's not how Bombas roll. They're not chucking a trash bag full of old socks into a Goodwill box at 2 a.m. and then climbing back inside their 1982 Lincoln Continental and driving off into the night. They're donating a durable, custom-built sock to shelters because socks are one of the most requested items of clothing. I didn't even know that, Danielle. I thought I was just enjoying some comfy crew socks for myself and hell with everyone else. But I'm glad to know that by going to getbombas.com weekend and getting 20% off of my first order, I managed to do a little good for other people and for my feet. Yeah. Alrighty, we have our first email, which comes from Tim in Brisbane, Australia. Tim writes, One thing I have found great about this show is that you, you both manage to, for lack of a better word, de-glamorize the world of video game journalism and ground it in reality. It's not all parties with game devs, conspiring at feminist gaming Illuminati coven meetings, and playing your favorite games for days on end. Most of the time it's hard work, frequently there's job instability, and sometimes a bit tedious trudging through games. That said, I'm kind of curious about this industry of games journalism. 
Obviously, it's not worth asking, how do you get into it? Because it seems like to be one of those lines of work where there are many different ways someone can enter. But possibly it might be worth asking, how, how did you two get into it? And do you have any advice for someone uh, getting a foothold in the industry? Keep casting those pods. Tim. Well, Tim. I worked at the American Civil Liberties Union for, for several years. Um, so I, I basically had a, a, a busy nonprofit job uh, working in, you know, the, the sort of wanting to do good sector. Um, and I freelanced forever. That's the sort of the real answer. Since uh, like a week after I was out of college, I had started freelance writing. I did a lot of movie reviews at first, and then I started, you know, writing for free, as I think a lot of us did at sort of smaller gaming sites. And uh, I freelanced for seven years, actually, before I sort of got the call from Polygon uh, to, to do this full time. And I, I sort of jumped on it. Um, thinking, well, hell, this opportunity is never going to come around again. And if I want to write words for a living and do video for a living, I'm just going to, I'm just going to have to do it. And, and there I went and that was, that was kind of my story. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a media is a, is a shit show right now to get into any kind of, of media. You know, uh, the online advertising model has, has turned into molten poo, and uh, it's a little hard to find a full-time job in this field, uh, but I would encourage anyone who really, really loves it and really, really wants to do it to, like, work full-time in something and freelance. Have a job and a steady paycheck, unless you live in one of those cool countries that, like, you get things like healthcare uh, for being a citizen, in which I guess, in which case, I guess you have a little bit more leeway, but I would encourage anyone to, yeah, to, to try to work full-time and do the other thing on the side. Sometimes the side gig becomes the real thing. Sometimes it doesn't, but at least that way you get to kind of eat uh, and survive. Yeah. Um, yes, this question at a really complicated time in my life. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, have, I have a lot of mixed feelings uh, which means I'm I'm probably not going to get into them because I feel like any advice I can offer is is super compromised. Uh, I will say that. Okay, so how I got into it um, really was a lack of better options. Uh, so I graduated uh, college in uh, 2007, nice. and the economy was already bad. In large parts yeah. of the country in 2007. <laughs> People ask, like, oh, it's 2008 where we realized there's a problem. Like, no, 2008 is when, like, like coastal media discovered there was a problem. But, like, man, if you were searching for a job in, like, the summer of 2007, like, you got the sense oh, yeah. that, like, people weren't feeling optimistic about <laughs> where things were headed. Like, there were a lot of resumes going out and never being heard back from. Uh, there were a lot of, you know, you walk in through the door, you hiring, walk right back out. Yep. Um, so, you know, 2007, I ended up just kind of working a, a, a string of, of really garbage jobs. And one of them was a, almost like a data entry job. And, yeah. uh, I ended up listening to a lot of podcasts and among them was, uh, GFW radio. Uh, the Brodio. Awesome. Yeah. And the One Up podcasts were in their, their heyday uh, back then. And I just sort of ended up 
realizing that like, oh shit, like video games are still a thing. And the conversation around them has really grown up from when I was last into them. And I want to be a part of this again. Uh, now, nothing would have happened uh, except that I got fired. Um, and in part, I got fired because, like, uh, I got fired because of Bioshock. Um, I, I ended up staying up all night <laughs> playing Bioshock. I wrote an essay about it for uh, Gamers with Jobs uh, a few years ago. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll link to it uh, somewhere on, the, yes, somewhere on the podcast page. That would be great. <laughs> but the bottom line is... Um, I hated my job. Uh, I was I was borderline mutinous. Um, I'm listening to all these podcasts where there were a few podcasts where like GFW GFW radio could get pretty real about how shitty jobs could be and like all the indignities you have to put up with a shitty job. And so like that was you know I was sort of sitting there being like, wait, this is fucked up. Like why? Like this is totally nuts. Why am I doing this? Uh, And so like really like. I was having a really sweet run in Bioshock <laughs> and it was like two in the morning and I realized I just didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Like I had to work. It was one of those, it was one of those fun places that's like you need to be in at your desk by eight and you need to leave at six every day. Um, lunch will be provided maybe. Uh, but yeah, we aren't going to pay you for that hour. Ugh. So you work 10 hours, get paid for eight. It was, it was a great place. Wonderful. Uh, so it's, it's three in the morning. I have to be at work at eight. It's it's in, it's dead of winter. Like at that point, the commute is uh, a little longer. Um, but it's like yeah. two two in the morning, three in the morning. I just didn't give. I just didn't give a shit. I just didn't care. So I kept playing Bioshock, and I, I ended up doing all that bargaining you do with yourself, right? Where it's like, <laughs> well, you know, like I like I've totally done awesome things on three hours of sleep. I'll be. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I can totally get like just just an hour nap. You feel so much better after an hour. Twenty minutes, twenty minutes is fine. <laughs> yeah. So I go to bed, wake up like three hours into my work day, call in. I'm like, oh yeah, I don't feel well. Like a terrible excuse. And then here's the crazy thing: I had the most blessed day, like perhaps of my life. Um, it was beautiful. Like, it was this weird, like, spring day in Wisconsin. And, uh, like, it was the day before it had been freezing and snowing. And, like, this day that I ended up accidentally taking off, uh, it was, like, the first day where, like, the temperature breaks, like, you know, 55 degrees. Um, oh, yeah. Which, in Wisconsin, like, 55 degrees, like, people are just pff, stripped down Bring in t-shirts. Shorts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, like, I have this, like, sort of charmed day uh, where I realize, like, one, this job is awful. Uh, two... I have something to say about video games. And so that day I actually like send in a pitch to the escapist, um, which at that time, like had a really friendly open door policy, uh, toward writers. Um, the, the, the team that were there at that time, uh, Julianne Greer, Russ Pitts, um, Jordan Deem, uh, were really good about trying to find new voices, uh, around games writing. And there were a lot of people who who sort of got their start at the Escapist, or at least got their first paychecks at the, the Escapist. Uh, when I pitched, I just didn't I just didn't know they paid. I just wanted to write an essay about <laughs> games. I had no idea. Yeah. Literally, the next day, I got fired for just <laughs> for absenteeism. Um, and so <laughs> I was like, well, I don't really care. I, I guess I'll play. I guess I'll finish Bioshock. <laughs> nice. Uh, and. The crazy part was, uh, like a week or two later, uh, Russ Pitts accepted my pitch, and I wrote it and sent it in. And it was only after they sent me my contract 
that I realized I'd be paid. And Money it was a longish, for this. Yeah. It was a longish essay. And I realized what I was going to get paid that week. And that, that essay represented about a day's work. And it was going to pay about as much as my shitty job did in a <sighs> yeah. week. And I was like, hold on. Hold <laughs> on. Um, maybe no more shitty jobs. Because by this point, it's 2008. You know, things are, still, things are worse. Things are yeah. worse. Like, there are, there are fewer good options. Um, so I just started, uh, started freelancing. And for a while, like, and this is the way a lot of it starts. You, you have that outlet that, that takes your work. You have the editor you're friendly with. And you keep them happy, man. Like, you, yes. are, you are married to those people oh, yes. uh, as you start. Um, you will like those first clients, like you do not ever, they, they are always your first priority, uh, as long as they're, as long as they've got your back, um, because that's home base. Yeah. And then it's, then and they're going to teach you a lot too. Like yeah. they're going to actually be the ones who teach you the ropes, who take you from, okay, not bad, you know, at least worth, worth professional writing level to actually really good. And you can now make a living doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for a long time, the escapist was like paying my rent. Uh, wow. Now, admittedly, the escapist didn't pay regularly. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but every yeah. quarter, I got a large infusion of cash. Um, enough to stay afloat. Uh, and in the middle there, like I end up becoming friends with Troy Goodfellow. And he opened some doors to me. To me. I started working uh, over at Game Shark with Bill Abner. Yes. Uh, where Danielle oh. and I uh, first started encountering met. each other. Yes. Uh, and bit by bit, like, you know, you, it started, you know, you're, you're working on like $50 reviews and stuff like that. And then people age out of the industry or burn out or vanish and your name gets called up and you, your turn. You're, you're working for the bigger assignments. And, uh, suddenly you've got sort of an accidental career. Um, and so, like, you know, there's no, there's no great mystery to it. It's just that getting that first door open is really hard because a lot of places will only, like, really talk to established writers and don't have the door open to, to new voices. Um, and so you really have to just sort of, it's not that different from a job search. You, you just keep sending pitches in. Um, yeah, you're going to hear no a uh, hundred times more than you hear yes. Yeah. And that's going to be the case for a very long time until you start breaking through and then you're going to hear a few more yeses. And it's and it's one of those things you just have to outlast everybody else. Like you just have to keep improving and keep outlasting everybody else and Yeah. That's that's kind of the only trick there is to it is not getting too discouraged and for me at least it was, you know, paying my rent and paying my student loans um with money from a full-time job and then, you know, having this as as something I just kept building sort of on the side of that. But where I sound the note of caution is that there's a reason there's attrition that works in your favor at first, and you don't understand why the attrition is happening. Yeah. Like, you see, like, oh, I'm moving up. Like, I'm getting to work for this outlet and this outlet. Uh, what you don't realize is the people who were there before you just couldn't do it anymore or could no longer afford to keep doing it at the declining rates uh, that were being offered. Uh, and so after a point, uh, you, you know, it's, it's very easy to end up feeling like you've ended up in a, um, sort of a trade that is devoid of a career. Yeah. Um, and that is, 
a bit of a trap. And I definitely felt as a freelancer sometimes like I had fallen into uh, a bit of a trap where like, you know, I had a lot of skills that were in demand, but only up to a point. Yeah. Uh, and it sort of felt like I was working like three times as hard to make in commissions what editors were just being paid outright for working yeah. like, you know. With no benefits too. Yeah. Which is the other part of this for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it's, I, I think it's, 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 it's one of those things where at, at this point, especially I think freelance writing around like entertainment media is a great like side project, side gig. Uh, I don't recommend it as like a primary goal. Uh, but anyway, that's the story. Uh, that's that's sort of how you go about gaining a foothold. Um, and I, 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 I discourage anyone from, from trying to get too much more than a foothold. Because um, it, it's, you know, be, be wary of what you're stepping into. Uh, it's don't like... Writers are all a little bit like self-effacing at times, uh, but I think like this is a case where people are not kidding around when they say like that it's a bit of a trap, um, and it takes you a long time to see it. But when you do, it's 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 pretty scary. Uh, that's that said, that said, um, making like struggling to make a decent living as a games freelancer still beat the shit out of working <laughs> a mediocre job for a similarly decent living uh, where you've got to really sort of like forego dignity, self-respect, time off, that kind of shit. Yeah. Um, and to a degree, like it can, it, it can be worth more than a higher paid job uh, in terms of like the satisfa satisfaction it brings you. Uh, it's, it's entirely possible. I know it cause I did it. Uh, to be a lot happier being a freelancer and slightly underpaid uh, than maybe doing something more lucrative that just feels like it's taking your you know life out of you. Yeah, I I would say I I feel like I'm very lucky because I get to write for a living and I get to make videos for a living and not a day goes by that I don't think, oh man, <laughs> especially with sort of the the hellscape that our country it feels like it's slowly becoming sometimes politically. There isn't a day that goes by where I'm not like, wow, the ACLU, that, that sure was a, a job at a place that was doing a thing. Um, but <laughs> again, it's a, kind of a tremendous privilege for me, at least to be able to like I say that I write for a living and, and I get to do kind of fun, fun things. This is a fun job. At least for me, this is a fun ass job. There's bullshit to it, but there's bullshit to literally everything that you could do. So I will say to you what I say to everyone about relationships. It's not the good times that will dictate how things go. It's whether or not your bullshit and your baggage and the things that you can put up with match up with the other person or the job or the careers bullshit and baggage and things that you can put up with. You'll find the greatest matches in your life when you find your bullshit matches up with their bullshit. And that's my answer. <laughs> All right. Uh, our next email uh, comes from Andrew. As a Canadian, I have to voice my love and complete and utter adoration for our $3 sci-fi. Yay! <laughs> uh, I wrote a long-forgotten blog post years ago about J.J. Abrams saving Star Wars. In short, 
dirty sci-fi is better sci-fi. And because of our $3 budget, no one can afford sparkly sets. And this is beautiful. I'm going to let these these sirens pass. Yeah. Uh, Unbeautiful on, on San Vicente. Uh, <laughs> boy, did I... Always always check the neighborhood where you're living around, like, rush hour. Like, don't, yeah. don't think That's Sunday morning and yeah. after work at, like, 7 p.m., like represents what a neighborhood is. That's that's not the case. It's not the time. Uh, anyway, getting back to Andrew's email. Now, let me remind you, there are a few levels of Canadian TV. While Killjoys reigns from the space sci-fi arm of Canada, they are mostly filmed in Toronto, sans the magicians. What you were thinking about was either the CW arm or the showcase arm. Both filmed in Vancouver. <laughs> if, you, if you find the need to watch more beautiful, subsidized, campy nonsense, <laughs> you are going to start recognizing actors. Aaron, Aaron Ashore, or maybe it's Aaron Ashmore. Ashmore, Ashmore yeah. from Warehouse 13 is now in Killjoys. Victor Webster from Mutant X was in Continuum. Uh, Zoe Palmer, Lost Girl, Dark Matter, yeah. goes on and on. Uh, I fear this email kind of lost itself, but I seem really excited about Canadian TV. <laughs> I am friends with people in nearly every level of its filming and production. I might actually be an actor and just not have noticed it yet. Thanks for the show. <laughs> Sorry for the rambling. But I hope you give our stuff more of a shot. And in case you were worried about someone making a Hamilton reference, making such a shot would not be a waste. You would not be throwing away your shot. Andrew, you almost <laughs> stuck that landing. And I'm not sure that Hamilton reference really sung, uh, but uh, and certainly didn't scan. But uh, it's it's a good email, and uh, I was unaware that um, there was like a Toronto arm of like sci-fi television because what I noticed like Toronto filming for is all the stuff that pretends to be New York. Oh yeah, um, yeah. which. Uh, I'm I'm starting to get into as I delve more into uh, trash can eclair type television. Uh, <laughs> let, let me tell you about the Suits Marathon I went on a few weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, we don't need to talk about that. But the point is, um, there's an awful oh. lot of shows. Like it turns out that if you just like slap a like blue gray filter over Toronto, people just assume it's New York. It's Manhattan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to say, Andrew, I hope my making fun of the band in Killjoys didn't throw you off. I love the show. I am loving it. And you all know how I feel about Lost Girl. So I love this shit. I, I am all about this trash can eclair of Canadian sci-fi television. I'm, I'm in it to win it. I also had a wonderful love affair with uh, Warehouse 13. I loved that show. I watched every episode of that show. I thought it was wonderful, Trash Can and Claire. I, I, I love these shows, not just for their sort of the dirtiness, which is a point, you know, that Andrew's making here that's absolutely correct. And something we, we touched on a little bit about Farscape, you know, me saying, like, I shouldn't be high and mighty. Farscape, I think, is the pinnacle of television. And they clearly had a budget of $3 on most days where they would, you know, throw a towel over something and call it a living spaceship. Um yeah, I, I, I love not only the sort of spirit of of improvisation that goes into that, but also the the character of it and the sort yes. of the the sort of uh, not visceral. That's a terrible word to use, but but the sort of physical quality of it. The same reason I thought it was great that they used Muppets, you know, in Farscape. Like there was an actual physicality to them that 
is always going to read better to me than than most CG or or at least most CG in this century. Um, like there's a wonderful weight to that kind of aesthetic, and the dirtiness is a wonderful thing. And I and I totally do agree with you. And I and I do think you know people get more creative under more constraints. And so maybe that's part of why I like these shows. They have heart, they have character, and all of them that I've watched, all these shows know that they're low budget. Like, there's no question. Like, there's definitely a self-knowing tone about every single one of these shows that's, like, listed here that I've watched and that, you know, I've been sort of happily obsessed with. And I think in it's, a weird It's in a way, spirit... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I, was just, I, was, I think in some ways those things can be... They can actually give you payoffs that, like, bigger budget things won't. Like... Yes. For instance, you're never going to get the Marvel movie where like Iron Man and uh and Bruce Banner just like talk shit out about yeah. like where they're at in their lives and like what is going on with them and like where their characters are headed. Because in a Marvel movie, that conversation's always going to be put off because something's going to explode. Right. <laughs> in like low budget sci-fi television they can't afford to have anything explode like they can't like nothing <laughs> can happen that's for the finale yeah exactly <laughs> exactly uh they can you know that's going to involve pyrotechnics and and a cg budget and that's that they can only do that twice a year yeah <laughs> and the rest of the time the action is going to have to be dramatic action between characters and i like yeah what like what was what was Farscape? Uh, a lot of times it was characters just interacting on the bridge or in the common room of uh, Moya. Yes. Um, and, and like how many ways can you spin those interactions? And it ends up being magical because at that point the characters are also nuanced and so shaded uh, in a way that something where you have the option to just have plot occur. Uh, you know, that, 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 that will be an escape hatch from character development at times. And I, exactly. I, think, I think Danielle, you and I tend to be more character development type people than like plot people. I think you're absolutely right. Absolutely. The only thing I was going to say is I, I hope that Andrew understands that I say these things with love and affection when I talk about the DP's, you know, friend, yeah. friends band kind of thing. Like, like you're really worried that Andrew's like in that. Band, I think right? Andrew you know? actually, you were like, is in the really band. <laughs> Andrew, I'm sorry. Was the musical I, I reference? I'd rather it. I'd rather the music be terrible and the show actually have heart and character than, you know, something soulless but, and pretty. But secretly you kind of wish that maybe that band went away and they found a different maybe, garage band. Maybe they can find another band. I don't, you know, it's, I'm sure it's fine. The people who do the music for Lost Girl, that's them. Get them. I'm sure they're all, work, they're all working how on the same busy, network. How busy you know? can Bear McCreary really be? <laughs> how busy can he be? I mean, I'm sure he's got like a couple of hours, you know, for their it's for just his, a little score. Cut of the three dollar paycheck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, so good. All right. Our next email uh, was an anonymous email, uh, and this person writes. On the most recent cast, you guys had a conversation about media that was very good at combining levity and darkness, and I was immediately brought back to Infinite Jest. I've slowly been climbing that mountain over the last few months. I'm about two-thirds through it. I'm amazed at how almost every main character has so deftly moved from being caricatures and strange punchlines from the mind of a hyper-educated logophile 
logophile? I've never actually heard that word. I'm sorry, that took me out of the email. My apologies. Hyper-educated logophile. But they actually have very deep pathologies and often find themselves stuck in some of the most powerful ruts of modern American thinking. I have a birth defect that manifests in fairly severe facial paralysis. I can't smile, I don't have any lateral eye movement, and I have some speech difficulties, although those have become more and more minor as time has gone on. Not many pieces of entertainment have ever really captured the feeling of otherness in a way that spoke to me about my life, but there's a segment in Infinite Jest that definitely does. To keep it brief, there's a character in the novel who takes up wearing a veil because she is so beautiful it essentially acts as a deformity and that she cannot engage with other humans in a way that isn't about her beauty. There's a segment that spoke to a cycle of feeling I know so well where she describes the feeling of being watched and being judged because of something you cannot control. You know that you cannot control this feature, yet you feel shame at the fact that you cannot get over the stairs and the discomfort of being judged. You are human, you want and need to interact with a way that feels real, but all you can feel is a cycle of guilt over how you react to someone else reacting to you. Reading the exchange where she discusses this feeling is one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had, and I think it works so well for me, beyond the personal connection, because a character that starts out as an oddity, a sort of inversion of the siren or the lethally beautiful goddess, and she is revealed to be so human and so much like everyone else who has ever felt alone or unable to speak to other people on a real level. I love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Hopefully you guys can someday convince me to pick up The Witcher 3 again. Thank you for that beautiful email and the personal story. I always want to thank people for writing in with that sort of stuff because it's 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 good. That kind of gets me right there. And um, yeah, I, I, I would probably put Infinite Jest as... as you know, if you put a gun to my head and said, what's your favorite novel, I would kind of have to say Infinite Jest, uh, just because it's one of the incredibly few books that I've read in my life, novels that I've read in my life that I continually, I read it a couple of years ago, but I continually just find myself staring off into space, thinking about those people and what they went through and thinking about how much sort of just, just empathy that, that David Foster Wallace had when writing them. And the way he just humanizes everyone the way that this person describes is like kind of magical and, and kind of genius and man, it's really good. And holy shit. I learned a lot about tennis when I read that book. I, uh, I, that's, that's sort of one of those books, uh, like leaves of grass. That's definitely like on my list of like things that one day I will assault. It's <laughs> not it, as it, bad as a lot of people say. like, okay. It, it's it's not accessible at first, and that's the main sort of hurdle with it. But like a lot of people kind of make it out to be this this like burden that you must <laughs> sort of encounter. And I find it incredibly readable. And I am the furthest thing from an intellectual that you will ever meet in your life. I really enjoy a good poop joke. And now I will let you make your point. No, there's no there is no point. Uh, it's that, that's about it. Me, I, I guess I am more of a considered lobster. Uh, speed like Wallace <laughs> Reader, sure, uh, but, sure. but, but less uh, le- less infinite jest. Um, but yes, that that was a terrific email. And uh... so here's the thing about The Witcher Three: <laughs> it's really good. <laughs> you should play. That's all I got. <laughs> oh well, that, I think that's a really good uh, point to go right into our weekend projects from. <laughs> So, Rob, other than considering the lobster, what have you been super into lately? Um, gosh, uh, so many things. <laughs> um, 
You want me to talk about the thing, don't you? I want you to talk about the thing because I think it would be really good. Okay. <laughs> so here's the deal. Um, <laughs> I've been working some really crazy hours this week. Yeah. Coming home really like late. Really tired. Yeah. Uh, point is, uh, Netflix suggested Gossip Girl to me the other day. Yeah, it did. And I was like, I've heard a lot about this show. Wonder what's up with this. (laughs) And then I watched four episodes in a row. (laughs) (laughs) And ate a not trivial amount of ice cream. Uh, We're in the middle of a heat wave. I think you you should tell them what kind of ice cream. Uh, it was, uh, coffee, uh... Coffee toffee spr- crunch? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was a Ben, it was a, it was a Ben and Jerry's, uh, like, coffee toffee, uh, crunch. Yeah. Oh, so delicious. Um, and there's no real, like, I can't endorse this show, uh, at all. Um, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a disaster, Danielle. Like, it is, like, this is not okay. Um... Literally, the pilot features not one, but two sexual assaults. Oh, my God. uh, That function mostly to establish a guy as the villain of the show. But not like a, not a super bad villain is the problem. Like, it's more like, yeah, this guy's an asshole. And not, this guy's probably a a criminal and sexual predator. Uh, And also to establish that this one dude's really good. uh, Because he's really cool. Because he stops a guy from raping his sister. Uh, which is, you know, really, I think that's your, if that's your moral scale, like, this is not like, hmm, how do I illustrate this guy's a good dude? Uh, Doesn't he, rape. Yeah. Good. Uh, like, it takes, takes, it takes umbrage, umbrage uh, when, when someone is trying to sexually assault his sister. Uh, boy, what, what, what a humanitarian. Uh, that aside, I don't know why I can't stop. It's just, it's, <laughs> it's, you, 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 like, you remember, do you remember Cruel Intentions? Oh, do I ever. <laughs> like, again, a total <laughs> shit show, right? Yeah. And yet, really watchable and memorable because it's, like, real estate porn and apartment porn and everyone is just so pretty. Yeah. Um, and all the emotions are just at a fever pitch. But then there's also this really, like, wry, snarky sense of humor that, like, it just makes it really easy to go along. Um, <laughs> and so, like, it's, you know, this is this is not something that happens very often uh, for me. It's happening increasingly because, uh, you know, I'm living alone in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah. So I watched a, a bunch of Gossip Girl. Uh, I have huge reservations. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep watching more. Like, there's, like, th- I guess... My concern about shows like this is that I suspect their brand of personal, like, drama and, like, relationship drama and the sexual politics around the show, I always suspect that, like, you're being lured out onto the ice, and eventually it's all going to crack and give way, and you're going to realize, oh my god, this thing was poison the entire time. (laughs) And that's my fear with the show. Yeah. I really think there's a parallel to be drawn here with uh with the ice cream with the toffee coffee bar crunch. There's a lot of toffee it's in that so thing. It's so delicious. Happy. Yeah, it's so delicious and it feels so good when you're eating it. 
and it is just like expertly crafted. Like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, by the way, better than your West Coast ice creams. And I say that as someone who enjoyed living on the West Coast. You know what Ben and Jerry's gets that you just want. You want big candy in your ice cream. Candy. Yes. 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 And that's the, so I'm having this ice cream, the coffee, toffee, crunch, whatever the fuck. Oh. And the thing is, just like Gossip Girl, yes. <laughs> occasionally it pays you off with a big bit of like fan or taste bud service when your spoon wedges up a big like paving oh, stone slab of best. toffee. <laughs> like, hell yeah. <laughs> it's like an entire, <laughs> an entire candy bar. <laughs> Oh my god, you you really nailed it there. You really nailed it. That is a true pleasure in life. No, I mean what is like really what is like like a show that pays off to the shippers? Then like here's your big chunk of candy. Like you've been waiting for this. Like you've been going through all this tasty ice cream and it's been good. Yeah. But you've been waiting for this part. Where these two pretty people get together. Exactly. And that's your big slab of toffee. Oh, um, so delicious. It's addictive yeah. and delicious and probably not good for you at all. But man, when that's what you want, there is nothing else. There is just n- The world could end. Everything could turn to flames around you. But if you get that big chunk, that whole candy bar, <laughs> <laughs> you are sailing. So, but but I guess you know to to be a little more serious about this thing. Um, I don't fully understand my fascination with what is largely a cast of vaguely repugnant characters, <laughs> sure, um, yeah. just totally screwing each other over. Um, and the show has, I think, no real sense of like moral stakes to any of this, like. You know, the, the whole, like, the sexual assault stuff in the first episode is kind of your, your tell, right? Like, when a yeah. show goes that route and then blows it off completely, there's no consequences. Like, no, like, one of the girls who was the victim in one of these things um, never refers to it again, basically. She was like, boy, that party sucked. And that's the last wow. we hear of it, really. I hope he yeah. doesn't tell stories about me. Um, oh, God. Yeah, and so, like, I know, like, there's no way this leads anywhere good. Uh, But at the same time, in in the meantime, you're kind of swept along on this ride as you watch these people just veering from one, like, opera scene, you know, (laughs) level of emotion uh, to the next, right? They're always, like, it's nothing, like, it's nothing but big scenes. It's nothing but, like, uh, agony and ecstasy. And I guess that's that's kind of the fun is like where your sort of adult serious dramas, I think, are a lot more like realistic and that things exist in the middle and things take a longer time to build and pay off. And then it takes time for new things to sort of take shape. Yeah. Like this show has no time for any of that. Like we we have places to go. We have people to ship. Uh, we are just going to whip through this thing uh, at, at a high rate of speed. And it's always going to be like Sturm und Drang. Um, and <laughs> I guess, you know, last night, that kind of worked for me. I watched four episodes. We'll see if I watch four. You just want to be entertained. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see if I watch four more uh, with the, you know, 
now that my apartment is actually cool enough to sleep in, maybe I won't. But <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, that's that's not a weekend project. I don't I don't I don't endorse that for anyone. <laughs> Uh, but it is this weird thing that happened to me for reasons I, I can't fully process. I'm going to be watching this one with, with great interest. And I'm, I'm going to watch how this develops in you, this this very special episode that's <laughs> happening to you right now. Um, I spent my weekend, uh, I'll, I'll briefly note this and then then speak about my, my endorsement, uh, because this isn't really an endorsement that everybody can kind of go... Get. I, I went to Universal Studios, the Halloween Horror Nights, the one that is in Orlando. I've been to the one in Orlando before and the one in Hollywood. And what it is, is a, a, a sort of a special event that the theme park throws every September and October. They sort of dress up some of their attractions as haunted houses. You know, the carnival sort where there's people in costume who jump out and scare you. Uh, but they are incredibly high-end, high-production-value haunted houses that have narratives and... Uh, a lot of detail and sort of professional lighting and professional makeup. And uh, basically they feel like going to a whole bunch of really small, short, expertly crafted uh, horror games. And they are incredible and wonderful. And if you have the time and budget to go to one of these events, it is the most fun Halloween thing I think uh, I've ever done. It's it's really, really fun. Really, really awesome. Uh, but again, because it's not really something I can say like, oh, go watch it, go read it, you know, go listen to it. I, I want to have a short discussion <laughs> about The Leftovers season one. Okay. And what this is was something you mentioned uh, at one point on the podcast and I've gotten to it. So go on. You, you had a, a preface. No, 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 no. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure I ever did talk about the light because I haven't watched the show. Oh, so you might be thinking of somebody else. I could have sworn you mentioned it on the show saying, or maybe it was something that you were interested in watching because uh, I, I was it went along with the theme or something. I was interested in a lot of things. Uh, yeah. I think, no, 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 no. Um, maybe maybe okay. you're thinking about Childhood's End. Uh, might, possibly. I don't know, there's possibly, a yes. whole lot of apocalyptic uh, yeah. you know, sci-fi type stuff. All, all that kind of shit. The, the, so The Leftovers is, uh, is basically left behind, but like, Less but dumb? HBO production values okay. on it. Yeah, it's an HBO series. I'm watching the first season. Everyone tells me the first season is kind of garbage, but the second season is like blissful beauty and it's wonderful. Premise is that 2% of the Earth's population, just 2%, just mysteriously disappeared one day. Nobody knows what the hell happened. There's just absolutely no actual knowledge about it. So there's a whole lot of cults and religious hysteria in American life. There's, uh, you know... Uh, uh, several sort of major cults and there's sort of minor cults and a whole bunch of sort of religious figures have popped up after this. And the show is a study about a small town in upstate New York. So one of the main characters is this really hot cop and uh, his daughter, <laughs> you know, well, is, is he's actually a law enforcement officer and not like a hot cop in the arrested development sense. Right. Where, okay. Right. He's really hot. Like he is, inexplicably hot but, he, but he's a police officer and not someone wearing officer. tearaway pants okay great right he is <laughs> he is the sheriff in this town and everything's kind of going to shit and uh, his wife has left to be part of uh, uh one of the cults basically and uh, his son has left to be part of one of the other cults and there's several other sort of main characters in the town there's a priest who's trying to hold it together you know sort of holding traditional religion together in the town there is a guy who runs around shooting dogs we have not understood why yet this is magical realism for you folks um 
there there is another character who I think is a sane person in this show. So uh, I should probably say I am a little bit hate watching it. I am fascinated by this show, and I think most of the characters are either incredible assholes or inexplicably inhumanly stupid. It's just the things that people do on this show. And I will say I'm about halfway through the first season. So, you know, maybe some things will be explained at some point. Uh, But I'm not really that hopeful for that. I think the idea is just things have gone to shit and people are acting crazy. And I don't buy it entirely because I actually think worse things have happened in the world in the last 15, 20 years. And, and, you know, the world has kind of gone to shit, but not everybody has gone off and joined a cult. So, you know, I, I have problems already sort of with the premise of the show, uh, but I'm hanging on for dear life. And I will say it's very compelling. I certainly want to keep watching it. I get excited every night when like, you know, my girlfriend and I will, will have dinner and she's like, you want to watch The Leftovers? I'm like, hell yeah, I do. Even though I spend sort of uh, a chunk of the time sort of yelling at the TV, like, don't, why would you do that? You're an asshole or you are so stupid. Uh, with with the exception of a couple of characters who I'm kind of in it to win it with, you know, they have flaws. They do screw up sometimes, but at least they seem to have some kind of consistency or decency or intelligence to them. So <laughs> that's isn't that a real danger when like there's a mediocre show, but you're you got a couple characters that you're like, oh, yeah. oh I really want this to go well for them. Yeah. And then you keep yes. checking in because you like there's literally like, there's four plot lines. You care about one of them. Yeah. But you keep following. I care about all of them. Like I care about all of the plot because I am I am interested to see, interested to see where it goes even if it's insanely stupid, which it has been so far. Yeah. My sister is a big fan of the show and I spent a lot of time with her this weekend in Lines for Haunted Houses and Haunted Houses and she explained to me that like She's really, really liked the show, even though she she also thought a lot of the characters were totally stupid. But she was kind of like, no, but this is a really interesting examination of when like a a weird religious event would happen and, and what the hell would happen to sort of our society based on that. And I'm kind of like, oh, OK, OK, I'll, I'll suspend disbelief a little bit. I just feel like something like 9-11 probably would have impacted us as much or more than something like the disappearance of people. Uh, it's not like we have great. I don't know. I mean, OK, like. It's a total apples and oranges thing. I know there's a complete religious context to this. No, but, and it, like, things I, I are was, unexplained. But... Okay. The difference is, like, okay, so I think I think like World War Two, like, basically okay. kills. That's a better of the example. World population. Yes. Better example. Um, but the thing is, that all fits within our, our sense of like ontological possibility, right? Like, this is like reality. That is, is still a thing that can happen according to his rules. Yes. What this starts with is the premise is that overnight our understanding of reality is profoundly altered in ways that we don't fully understand. But the only thing it resonates with are apocalyptic prophecies and like religious visions and something. Like I think if 2% of the population were just gone tomorrow, I do think that would profoundly like alter and, and wreck uh, a lot of like societal foundations, but part of me thinks that. Part of me also thinks that in a month, people are like, "Well, I guess they're not coming back," and life would go on. <laughs> yeah, that's that's sort of, I guess, my feeling. And and thank you, that did actually shine a little bit of light on sort of what the difference uh, might be for for 
like, I, I sort of, you know, I, I knew logically that, like, okay, this is a different context. It's something unexplained completely. And it looks like certain things that have a religious connotation. It's maybe a, a goofier version of, of sort of what happened in the movie Contact when people, you know, when there was real... There yeah. was contact with aliens, and that actually, you know, that caused certainly some activity on the fringes, but it didn't cause all of American society to kind of come to a standstill. It, it affected things, but it, people adapted. And I, and I think that human beings are, are only good at one thing, and that is adaptation and sort of taking these things, these big ideas and these, these fundamental rockings of our understanding of the world and, and just kind of being like, well, all right. And, and moving on with it. I think that's the only thing we're good at as a species. Um, so I, I guess part part of me is reacting to that. Part of me is reacting to the fact that, like, this <laughs> this feels like, a, a, you know, a concept out of the magical realism rulebook, basically. Like, yeah. And that's always a genre that we, we chatted a little bit before the, the episode about this. But I, I am a diehard sci-fi fan. I enjoy fantasy. But magical realism is something I've always had a really, really hard time with. Like, it, it takes something, like, above and beyond for me to enjoy a piece of magical realism. Something like Pan's Labyrinth. It needs to be kind of on that level. Well, and also or Pan's I'm Labyrinth like, is super not, right? Pan's Labyrinth it's is pretty much just fantasy. this yeah. girl has... No, no. Because none of no? the fantasy is real. Well, right, but I mean, in terms of the genre, you would slot it in as a movie. But I think magical realism, that shit has to be real on some level. It has to exist in the reality of the fiction. Pan's Labyrinth, I think, gets... I think it edges it. It it sort of faints toward being magical realism, but then in the end, it's like... No, actually, this girl's just trying to, like, create an escape for herself because, like, she's caught up in the Spanish Civil War and her mother's married a fascist. Right. Okay, um, that's fair. Yeah. yeah. I, like I, I would. It's 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 adjacent to magical realism, but I don't yeah. think it's uh, like all the way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Its ass is hovering over a little bit. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um. But so so yeah. I guess the, my point is even stronger than that. I just have such a hard time with magical realism. Like I have such a hard time because it creates these massive inconsistencies. Whereas a sci-fi work or a fantasy work. You suspend disbelief by being in that world. Just by showing up at the door for entry, you're kind of like, okay, uh, as long as you create a consistent world with consistent rules, I'm in it. It's cool. We're, we're good. I can suspend disbelief. But when it's like, it's 99% the real world, but this guy runs around shooting dogs. It's just sort of like, really, asshole? Is that is that what we're doing? Is, is that where we are? And And it like creates a disconnect for me. So maybe it's my fault. It also sort of reeks of a whole bunch of scenes with very talented actors, very talent, you know, production values are incredible. The production design, the cinematography, the editing, it is top notch. And these people are having very profound scenes about very profound subjects. They're having real emotional encounters and it all feels totally fucking disconnected because it's all about this, this concept that I didn't hundred percent buy from the, from the first. So I don't know if this is a Danielle problem or a leftovers problem. <laughs> I think mean, it sounds like a little bit of both. Yeah, uh, but I also feel like I mean, don't you feel like there's been this underbelly of prestige TV where it's like a lot of exquisitely shot, exquisitely acted dog shit? 
Oh, like for sure. Oh man, yeah. do you remember? Do you remember like the three months when True Blood was prestige TV, and then oh, it turned God. into True Blood? Like, yeah. Like, Whoa, it's like vampires for like grownups on HBO. Oh, and then it was yeah. like, and then like literally like the like a week after people were like had that realization, and like Terry Gross is interviewing the cast of True Blood on like Fresh Air or something like that. <laughs> like two weeks later, it's like, oh no, wait, it's like slutty Buffy, but way dumber. Yes. Like that's kind of what the that's basically what the uh, you thought you were getting A you're actually getting B you, it's, it's it's really trashy yes yes absolutely but I feel like True Blood True Blood at least always knew what True Blood was it yeah. feels like the leftovers does not know that it's kind of really stupid like it does not feel at all self knowing well like, that's kind of where I'm at with uh, yeah. With, with Game of Thrones to an increasing extent as well. Sure, Where it's like, sure. oh, you still think you're producing, like, this really sophisticated, like, political drama. And, like, yeah. man, that dragon is whack. Yeah, <laughs> like, that, exactly. That, you see that piece of shit? Come on. Oh, what are you God. doing? Like, are you seriously telling me these dudes having a medieval battle killed so many guys in a big pile that it turned to a wall with human corpses? Like, are you kidding? Come on. What are you doing? That, that dragon is... You know, the person I, I laughed at for not taking an After Effects class last week, I think, <laughs> I think it's the same school of thought. Just, oh, yeah, it's, I'm I'm having a blast with the, the era we're in with TV. Like, I'm having fun. There's a lot of stuff I'm really enjoying. But I think as we get further and further in, I am going to be f- closer and closer aligned with with Andrew from our letters section with the dirty, crappy, low budget sci fi, than with the 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 real prestige. I I think it's just gonna I'm just gonna get pushed further and further into my my trash can eclairs and saying no to the. Well, you say you know, that, but then the Americans. Oh, but the Americans comes from the fundamental place that we both love of. Characters that not only grow, but they grow together. Yeah, they do oh, weird man, things. Their personalities funny. bounce off each other. Like it feels like like creatures in a in a God, test the, tube. The Americans you know? is like, what if The Witcher Three was a TV show? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly it. Oh, we're so predictable, Rob. <laughs> But you know what? At least we're internally consistent, unlike magical realism. Boom! Put that yeah. in your Eat it, pipe magical and realism. smoke it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, good lord. Okay. So I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. And just so you don't have to read the entire outro yourself, like always. Uh, you can learn more about Idle Weekend at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. Thank you for that, Rob. And folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending us wonderful letters. Thank you for all that you do. If you have a moment to take a second and rate us on iTunes, that helps us out so, so much. And word of mouth is also a a powerful friend of our show. So if you're enjoying the show, if you're having fun, please do take a second to tell a friend, tell a frenemy, tell your pets, tell your family, tell your uncle, tell whomever uh, to give us a listen. It helps us out so much, and we really, really do appreciate it. 
So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Eat some toffee. <laughs>